Well, we're doing something a little different today. This is Robert Armengol. I'm the producer of the show. And I'm in the studio with our hosts, Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan, and our assistant producer, Rebecca Berry. All of us are scholars, employees at the University of Virginia, and we've been reeling from a terrible tragedy. We've lost three students, Lavelle Davis Jr., Deshaun Perry, Devin Chandler, all football players who died at the hands of a former football player, another student identified as Chris Jones. We're here using the opportunity to try to maybe make sense of what happened and what we're going through and ask ourselves what we can do to understand, to move forward, to heal, and to maybe uh, make our community stronger. So what do we do? How do we respond? How do we make sense of this? Siva, any thoughts? I wish I had answers. I definitely have impressions and strong feelings. Um, you know, I've been uh, part of this community for 15 years. And uh, over that time, we've had a number of really difficult moments. We have lost students before under horrible circumstances. A number of them were rather high-profile incidents. In each case, this community, the university and beyond, through Charlottesville and the greater Charlottesville area, rallied, came together, supported each other. We demonstrated it again this week. <laughs> you know, I almost wish we were less uh, effective at it. But, um, you know, one of the things we've seen in this country in the past 20 years is the increased frequency of these moments where communities like Charlottesville must come together in the face of hateful crimes. This one was so internal, students killed and injured, a student charged with the crimes, and that's really hard to make sense of. We, um, I think this is hard for people to understand outside of our profession, um, but there is a certain amount of love that we feel as faculty members, as professors, as teachers, for our students. It's a unique kind of love. I don't think the Greeks had a term for it, uh, but it has to do with a sense of potential, like honoring the potential of young people who are taking time out of their lives to spend a little bit of time with us, um, try to refine their senses and their vision for the world. And so in each of our students, we see tremendous potential uh, and it shines from them. And to see that potential snuffed out in any student is crushing. It's just crushing. My feelings from the early morning, Monday, November 14th, when I, I first learned it happened, was this really powerful mixture of uh, identification. Identification as, as a teacher, uh, identification with the professor who was on the bus at that moment and had taken these students into her care, identification with the parents of the students who died and were injured, because of course I'm a parent, identification with the students who are at UVA and know these young men and and love them and appreciate them. And, and of course, identification with everybody in my town who has gone through moments like this again and again and again over the last 15 years. Uh, 
I, I don't know that I've experienced anything quite so powerful. And uh, I don't know that any of us have regained our, our balance after this. Yeah, that's well said, Siva. Um, the first thing I want to say is that November 14 is my son's birthday. He turned 26. And the greatest day of my life was his birth. Yeah. So all day I thought about those parents. And just that sense of beauty snuffed out was overwhelming. Mm. But of course, that was just my frame. Everybody had their own approach and their own uh, relationship to the trauma. And, you know, the University of Virginia is a big school, um, but there are times when you realize it's a really small community. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's often the tragic times that make you realize how much you depend on others and how intertwined your life is with, with the life of the community. Like you were saying, Siva, the love we have for our students is peculiar. It's, it's a strange kind of, of joy in their, in their youthful presence. One of the great things about being a professor is that while we grow old, we have this extraordinary privilege of being around young people all the time. And it, it's like drinking the fountain of youth. So we have this immense privilege. And when they suffer, it just is absolutely heartbreaking. And you, you just feel like this sense of loss that is nothing like what the families and the friends of these men are feeling. But it, it is still this huge sense of emptiness and just utter despondency. You know, that said, we, we are also in positions of influence and university leaders, they, they have to step up and they have to be public and they have to begin a process of conversation. And, and that's often without any particular training on our part. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've been doing, is trying to get back in touch with our students, be available to them, um, also let them direct how much they want us mm -hmm. <laughs> talking to them or actually being present. In many cases, they don't really, aren't that interested in us at the moment. They have other resources. So we're, you know, we're just trying to, uh, you know, practice empathy as much as possible. And of course, our students are mostly teenagers. So how can we ask them to, to be prepared to handle this kind of thing? They, right. they can't. So we have to find a way to make ourselves available where we can. Rebecca, you've been in the classroom this week, and I'm wondering what you've been hearing from your students, what you've been doing to try to help them heal. This is my second year at the University of Virginia. I haven't had very long to get to know this community, but the students who came this morning, five in person, two virtual out of a usual 18, it's clear that quite a few of them are hurting and decided to stay home as a result. Those who came have an impulse toward comfort and seeking compassion and shared experience in community. And so something that really stood out to me was the students who came in and said, I knew that I was taking a risk going to a big public school of just being a number, being a nobody. But I have not felt that this week. I have felt that every individual has been valued, that the community came together to celebrate these lives and to mourn um, all together. And it's wonderful to hear them feel that despite this experience, they in fact feel that this was proof that their experience here has been real and authentic and something that will last with them. Um, 
they did share with me, they are 18 years old, that they're feeling rather desensitized at this point to mm. all of the violence, all of the mass shootings that they hear about. But that being said, for each of them, there was a moment in the night when it really hit them that this was real. Mm. For one student, it was when the emails switched over from shots fired to run, hide, fight, an active command of what to do to survive really changed things for him. For another student, it was the experience of saying, I'm going to stay up until they have caught the person who did this and staying up until 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. and realizing it wasn't going to happen that night and falling asleep at last. And for another one who has been in the working world where there was high crime rates, he said, I feel particularly desensitized to images of violence. I've been surrounded by it. And yet when all my friends started texting me, are you okay? Are you safe? That's when it hit him, the fact that others were reaching out to ensure that as a community, they were all connected and had one another to be safe. That night was terrifying. Uh, I have a niece and a nephew who are first year students at UVA. And I reached out to them to make sure they were okay. And everyone was on lockdown. There were students in the library. There were students in classroom buildings who were studying at night and spent the night there. And in the morning, I reached out to my daughter, who's in her first year of college out of town, to let her know that we were safe and her cousins were safe, but that this horrible thing had happened. And, you know, she grew up in Charlottesville. She is intimately familiar with all the pain and the suffering that, that this town has been through in the last few years. And it was very upsetting, you know. Um, I felt like you, Siva, just so many different waves of identification. And um, when the police announced early in the morning who it was they were looking for, I recognized the name immediately because in 2018, Chris Jones had been a student in one of my classes. And I just couldn't put that together with what we were hearing had happened. Uh, I remembered a young man who was kind and thoughtful and I've just been tied in knots uh, trying to figure out if I missed something, mm -hmm. if I could have stayed in touch, if I could have seen pain or a, a need there. And, and it reminded me of the great responsibility that, as you said, well, without any particular training necessarily, we're given in the lives of these young people who come to us at a critical moment and we're charged with helping them understand the world, conveying knowledge and a mode of thinking, but also just helping them find themselves right. and figure out where they belong. Yeah. We don't know what happened in the intervening years. Uh, there are a lot of questions, a lot of questions we may never know the answer to. But I do think it's important to ask them, and I think that 
that's going to be a very difficult process for us. And one that, you know, sadly has been repeated over and over again in communities across this country after episodes of gun violence, each with their own story, their own set of circumstances. And, you know, this one really defies so many of those previous narratives in ways that are very unsettling. Uh, I, I've been thinking more recently about the professor who took these students on a field trip to Washington, D.C. to see, of all things, a play about Emmett Till mm-hmm. in a class about African-American theater. I cannot imagine what she's going through right now. I mean, here is somebody who clearly cared so deeply about her students and, you know, went the extra mile to expose them to important issues, um, to help them grow. She was doing what we're supposed to do. Right. She was opening up her time, her energy, and helping students, even students who weren't in that class, to experience something beyond the classroom. We should all be that committed, that creative, that loving. I have been identifying as well with a particular group of students, the student journalists. Um, I was a student journalist. I know, Robert, you were a student journalist. And I was a young professional journalist. And I know, Robert, you were a young professional journalist. And like me, you probably uh, led up a really comfortable, privileged life untouched by violence until it was your job. And this is what I thought of when I thought of the student journalists who, as journalists do and must do, ran toward the gunfire, ran toward the violence, ran toward the scene to witness it for the rest of us to assume that charge and to take a risk. None of those journalists knew what they were running toward. None of them knew whether they were going to get there before the scene was closed down. None of them knew who had done what and where that person was, but they knew they were running into danger. And then they had to see the unthinkable, turn it into words and share it with the world and expose themselves to whatever criticism was likely to come, sometimes deriding them, uh, harassing them, and all of that happened. And, you know, Siva, they have to suffer the very same trauma that their peers are going through while they're trying to do that job. Right. They're students. They might be friends with these victims, these young men. And so being already part of the fabric, part of this community, and then having to work to serve the community, to serve the ideals of this vocation they've chosen on top of that, and to put themselves at risk. It's terribly unfair. I want nothing more for my students than to have four years of peace, four years of contemplation, four years of fun, four years to find themselves and not have the madness of the world thrust upon them any sooner than it must be. But they were not granted that privilege. You know, this semester, like a lot of semesters, the subject matter that I've been teaching is really difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, War, genocide, um, violence of one kind or another. 
And it's a lot under the best of circumstances. And we have not been living in the best of circumstances. The pandemic has already eroded a lot of the capacity of these students for for, for joy and for uh, sort of being a teenager. Yeah. So they're already coming in somewhat raw. I ask them to deal with a lot of difficult stuff in the classroom, uh, and they, they do it courageously. But they're also reading a great deal of difficult material in other courses about slavery, about race, ethnicity, anti-Semitism. These are all subjects that my colleagues teach, and the students are drawn to them. They know they're important, but it's, it's hard. And one student about 10 days ago just approached me after class and said, you know, I'm just feeling a little overwhelmed. I'm a fourth year. I've been doing this now four years. I'm a history major. I've taken every great class and great teacher, but they're all about such difficult and depressing material. Sometimes I just don't know how to, you know, that I can handle it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I realized that she was, you know, she was asking for advice. How, how do you deal with this stuff? And it's a great question because the closer you get to the primary sources and the human stories, the harder it becomes. And my advice to her, which I I feel like I do have in the back of my mind sometimes as I as I work on this material, is that a very few people left us records, uh, witness uh, of what they experienced in, say, the Second World War. And they did that because it was an act of insistence that we hear their story and that we recognize it. And what they want more than anything else is just for us to, to hear them and to engage with what they experienced because they feel they're speaking for so many others whose voices were silenced. So you have an obligation, you know, to confront the difficult material, to think critically about it, to, yes, to feel it, but also to say, what does it, what does it mean? What's the significance? To, to do the critical thinking that students are supposed to do and that we teach them to do. But then along comes real life and bashes into this fragile architecture that you've been building with them. And well, how, can they, how can we possibly ask them now to, well, you know, let's have some critical thinking about this tragedy, this trauma. It's difficult to know how to put the, the next foot forward. As a teacher, do we go into the classroom and say, well, let's, let's think broadly about this. Let's put it into context. Well, no, we're not ready for that. Students aren't ready for that. Um, but I do think the fact that these students went to Washington to see a play about Emmett Till is a almost cosmic piece of this narrative that is kind of unbearable because yeah. they were doing the work. They were taking... The, the, the risk, emotional risk of confronting the Emmett Till story in a live play, they were making themselves vulnerable yeah. to, to break down, to confronting this story so that they could then step back and say, now I want to understand lynching in America and I want to put it into, into historical context. And I think that's the thing that's so painful is that we ask them to be vulnerable when we confront difficult historical material. We also assure them, look, it's okay because you're going to be able to step back and, and compare it to other things and put it in context. We just can't make that move right now. Everyone is too raw and too wounded. Um, so it's going to be a while before we'll know how exactly to talk about this with them. Yeah, we've arrived at the Thanksgiving break, and that's probably a good thing. I think, you know, it makes sense to give, especially our students and ourselves, uh, space to reflect, to be at peace, um, so that we can figure out what that next foot forward is and what exactly we need to bear witness to. I hope we can have a robust conversation about our mental health infrastructure. Yeah. I, mm. The indications from news reports are that Christopher Jones was a troubled young man. And again, we don't know all of the details yet, but while there were signals there, 
they were channeled perhaps understandably through the criminal justice system. I think we would do well to ask, you know, what kind of systems can we have in place to intervene that go beyond ones that might push people away, right? Um, rather than, than bring them in and um, you know, show them care. And one of the things that I think we should bear witness to eventually um, is that never mind what happened here in Charlottesville in, in 2017 when this community was visited upon by neo-Nazis and fascists. We've been seeing in Charlottesville, like other communities around the country, an increase in gun violence that has gone, for whatever reason, underreported. And that's very troubling. And there was something about this event because of the context in which it happened, uh, because it occurred in the sort of beautiful <laughs> bubble of university life that was so shattering that I think has woken us up a little bit to the ways in which we have normalized our reaction to other forms of violence going on around us. On the Saturday before this shooting at the University of Virginia, just a few blocks from where I live, a young person suffered multiple gunshot wounds in a poor neighborhood. And it was just one of, I think, more than 160 shots fired events in Charlottesville in the past six months. Most of them have not resulted in injury, but all of them have resulted in trauma. Mm -hmm. We've seen our schools shut down, not just the university, but our public schools put on lockdown for real and imagined threats for hoaxes. And I can't help but see it as a kind of pathology, a kind of social pathology that we are going to have to come to terms with, uh, not just as a university community, but on a broader scale, on the state and national one as well. Right, right. Rebecca, I wanted to ask you, you have a lot of experience teaching before you came to the university at the high school level. You know, I'm wondering, because students have become so used to, from a young age, having to be aware of the possibility of sudden and devastating violence. How did you manage that as a teacher? What words of wisdom do you have for us from that experience? What I recall about my last couple of years of teaching when I was in Connecticut and Sandy Hook was looming large and then Parkland happened right after I got hired at a new school that is when the conversation shifted to a matter of not if, but when. Mm. And I remember making a plan in my own head of how we would escape if we had to. I kept a small hammer in my desk at work. I, um, I was very alarmed when some students brought it to my attention that you can open our super heavy-duty locked doors with just a credit card. And there were a lot of discussions happening about, do we start imposing uh, metal detectors do we start talking about arming teachers? But when I think about the way that we try to grapple with these issues and how we move on, how we keep doing our jobs every day, I wanted to address what Will was saying about students opening themselves up and being vulnerable and being willing to engage with difficult topics. I think our part as teachers is to 
instinctually follow gratitude where it leads us. Mm -hmm. When a student does open up, we praise them. We acknowledge it with specificity and with grace, and we demonstrate a kind of care and compassion that is perhaps above and beyond of what we should have to do, but at this moment in time is what we need to do if we're to make it forward as a society. Um, today was an opportune moment for me to give some feedback on our second assignments. I had asked students if they could add something to the archive of the world, what would they create, what would they put mm -hmm. in? Right. And we got a bunch of wonderful projects, and I decided that today was a day they needed to hear the feedback out loud, not just in writing, and so that they could share in this experience of being told. Um, I think what you bring to this project and what you bring to the world is incredible maturity and gravitas. I think what you bring is an instinct for demonstrating caring and giving to others. I think what you bring is a raw courage and a willingness to make yourself an experimental subject for the sake of the world around you. And so that's what I would encourage people. If they're feeling at a loss, it never hurts to lead with gratitude. That's right. Well, that's so important. I, you know, We had a moment of silence here at the university. The day after the attack, we had a, a students called for um, a silent gathering on the the lawn, the sort of central area of the University of Virginia, uh, and it, it was quite moving and touching. And I think once we join together in silence, it's time for us to use our voices for that very purpose, right? To acknowledge each other, acknowledge each other's humanity, our capacity to support each other through the most difficult times. Um, I remember walking the streets of New York in the days after 9-11-2001 and finding this odd mixture of of silence and acknowledgement where people would pass each other in the street and make eye contact, which, you know, would under any other circumstance never happen in New York. And there was this, this sort of constant effervescent mutual recognition of humanity and of, of vulnerability. And it was beautiful. And this is one of those moments that we're experiencing here. And I think, you know, we're seeing it in our classrooms and we're experiencing it in our daily lives. You know, when we see an, an old friend, or we see a new friend or we see a student or we just see a neighbor, there's a nod, right? There's a recognition. And, and these moments have the potential to solidify community, to enrich society, and even to enhance democracy if we process it right. But just as easily, maybe more easily, these moments have the potential to tear all of that apart, community, society, and democracy. One of the things that all three of those aspects of our lives requires is a sense of shared fate, a sense that we're all in something together. We all breathe the same air and drink the same water and walk the same streets that we all depend on each other and trust each other. And, and when that's broken and we cease trusting each other and we just start fearing each other, that's when the worst aspects of our behavior can bubble up, can take form in the ugliest and most profound ways. And, you know, I think it's going to take active measures to make sure that we come out of these moments better rather than worse. Another way to put everything you're saying is we need more love. Mm -hmm. 
And that would be a good thing for democracy, too. I mean, I, I think we underrate the value of love and democracy, right? I think that, I mean, one person who got it was Walt Whitman, mm. where he wrote about how those two phenomena of our lives are fused, that you can't have democracy without some basic measure of love for your fellow citizen. To trust your neighbor with helping to govern your society, your state, without the level of respect that demands some form of love. It's that form of love that I saw in New York in the days after, you know, September 11th. It's the form of love that we all experienced in Charlottesville in in the days after, in the weeks after, in the months after um, the invasion of August 11th and 12th. 2017. And we really have to recognize it, name it, appreciate it, honor it, honor our capacity to be good to each other and remind ourselves how good we can be. Because if we don't, we just dwell on how cruel we can be. This is a theme we haven't actually touched on, which is what's the emotional yeah. you know, dimension of democracy? Well, how important is empathy to make it work? And once you said it, I'm realizing like, wow, it's crucial. I mean, how else can you, you know, come to accept that you might not be able to run things this time around, but people who you disagree with, they're going to give it a shot and uh, and you have to fundamentally, you have to tolerate them and accept them and embrace them as partners. Yeah. I had a quick note of gratitude I wanted to end on. Yeah. This morning before I went in to teach, I was doing some last minute preparation in the English grad lounge in Bryan Hall and a staff member walked in. She had purchased several boxes of Kleenex for any teachers that wanted to bring them to class. And she came over and handed me one. And that's when the tears came yeah. <laughs> and she offered me a hug. And it was a really wonderful start to my day, as well as that release of something that was pent up that gave me the courage and gave me the strength and clarity that I needed to go teach the lesson in the way I wanted to. And that's such a good allegory for what we all need to be giving each other, you know, giant boxes of Kleenex. This show is produced at the Karsh Institute of Democracy, with support from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. We're distributed by WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. Our staff includes some very special undergraduates, Ellie Bashkow, Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. We'll be back on our regular schedule next week. Stay strong, everyone, and have a peaceful holiday.